The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 1, 14-28. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They, And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once the fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope you've been studying and you've been enjoying this time that we've we've got in our uh, in the book of Mark, and I know you know what this is actually. I, I'm surprised that you guys are hardcore coming out in the snow, right? You guys are hardcore coming out in the snow. It was pretty nasty out this morning, so I commend you on that. Um, but I hope you've been enjoying our time in the book of Mark together. I know we're only two weeks in, but it's my prayer that our study would acquaint you or maybe reacquaint you with the real Jesus. Uh, One of the downfalls of our modern society is that we have lost the ability to study. Many of us, because of our our brains have literally been rewired through technology, we have lost the ability to sit for long periods of time and to think deeply about something. I, I would challenge you, if you're reading or if you do study or you read the Bible, how often do you reach for your phone while you're reading? I always get on my wife these days because we're watching a movie and she can't even watch a movie without the phone. And I'm guilty the same way, but I try to make a point so I feel better than my wife to put my phone down before I actually do it. I feel the pull, but I don't do it, right? Much of our news today gets acquired through our Facebook feeds or our Twitter feeds. Like we want our news in 140 characters or less. Tell me what's happened and tell me who's to blame, right? We skim news articles, blogs, and rarely do we ever read a scholarly journal or pick up a book on the topic that we are researching. What that means is we are usually really confident in what we think we know, but our knowledge is actually only a surface level. We don't really know what we're talking about much of the time, We just regurgitate headlines, one-liners, and position pieces that have been fed to us. And my contention in this series is that many of us know Jesus in the same way. And therefore, we only know Him in a nominal way. Most of us only have a surface-level understanding of who Jesus is. We know a few of His one-liners, a few things that that we've heard about Him that we kind of like, and so we put them in our pocket. But we don't understand the totality of who Jesus is. We don't understand Him in depth. And that's why we're spending over a year in the Gospel of Mark. And what that means is that if you're going to show up week in and week out, for the next year and however long it takes, is I'm thinking I can stretch this out till next Easter, okay? So that's what I'm thinking, all right? I know I have 56 or so sermons outlined right now, but I think I could squeeze in a few more. So we're going to get to Easter. And what that means is if you spend the next year and whatever with us, 
we're going to be spending roughly about 60 hours studying specifically the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. 60 hours, okay? And I'm just going to throw this out there just to let you know. I spend roughly 10 to 16 hours a week uh, on the studying the text, in the text, preparing the sermon. So if you add that into our time together, we're getting around 600 to 700 hours worth of study in the next year on the life and work of Jesus. Okay? So that's a lot of time, right? That's a lot of time. That's a lot of devotion. And I think it's important, but I think what, I, what I'm praying is going to happen is that that much time spent uh, studying the life and work of Jesus is going to foundationally shape us and change us. And every single week, as we come to know Jesus in a greater and greater and greater way, we're going to get closer and closer to knowing the real Jesus. And what we're going to learn today is the real Jesus creates reactions. The real Jesus creates reactions. The real Jesus is so potent, he's so provoking, he's so powerful, that his presence demands a response from everyone who comes in contact with him. This is what I thought this week. Now, I, I don't know why I thought this illustration, but this is what I'm going to use, okay? And it might be bad. I might never use it again, but we'll see. Jesus is like a cue ball, okay, whose actions create reactions from every other ball that he comes in contact with. Jesus is the mover. He's the one that comes towards us, and anyone he comes in contact with, they must react to him. Why is that? Well, in verses, we're, today we're in, we're in Mark chapter 1. We're reading uh, from 14 to 28 is what we're studying. And what we're going to see in verses 21 to 28, Mark tells us that Jesus teaches, this is an interesting phrase that Mark uses. He says, Jesus teaches as one who had real authority. Now, the, the root word, um, or the, the root word of authority means literally out of the original stuff. So he teaches like one that was, came out of the original stuff. It's from the same root word as author, right? We get it. We get that, right? The author. So when Jesus taught, he taught differently than anyone they'd ever heard. He wasn't like all the philosophers and the sages, and he didn't have this kind of derived authority that, that the scribes and the teachers did. When Jesus taught, think of this. When Jesus taught, he spoke like the author, the originator, the one who wrote the script. Now, this is exactly how the, the Apostle John started his gospel account when he said that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then he goes on to say that Jesus is that Word that has now been made flesh. So if we're going to understand Jesus, we must first understand that he didn't just pop up out of nowhere. The story of Jesus doesn't begin where we're at here in the gospel of Mark, right? Jesus began thousands of years before that. The story of Jesus begins in the beginning with God. And what we see in the beginning is that God, the Father, is the ultimate author He's the author of the story of life. And like any author, his script was birthed in his own mind. He creates the characters, he sets the scenes, and he determines how it's going to end. That's what authors do. They write the story from beginning to end. But what we're going to understand and what we begin to see here is that Jesus, this is unique, Jesus is uniquely author. He has this authority. He's author, but he's also character in, the, in his own story. He's a character with authority. And everyone who comes in contact with the author, comes in contact with Jesus, has to respond in some way. He's the action that creates a reaction. He's the cue ball that hits and everything has to respond. Indeed, some of his first words as we read here, his first words that we hear of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus hasn't spoke yet, right? He's been quiet. We met him last week. We met John before that. Here's the first words of Jesus, and some of those first words are this. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does repent mean? Repent means to change directions. Think of that. That's what cue balls do, right? 
They cause other balls to change directions. Jesus is that cue ball. When he touches you, when his life intersects with yours, when his story intersects with your story, you feel the authority of the author and you have to respond in some way. Mark shows us a Jesus who knows who he is, a Jesus who knows what he came to do, and a Jesus whose message is one that is meant to draw a line in the sand down all of humanity that will divide them into two types of people based on their reactions to him. This whole message that Mark is going to be presenting to us is meant to present this question to us. How will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to the author who's entered into your story and who confronts you where you are when his life intersects with your life? How will you respond to him? You can love him and follow him or you can reject him and choose your own path. But what we're going to see today, there's no foolish notion that I can believe in Jesus and stay the same way. There is no middle ground. There is no believing in Jesus for salvation without actually following Jesus in a life of discipleship. And that's because Jesus isn't just a savior, isn't just a teacher, isn't just a philosopher, but he comes as a king who had real authority. To reject Jesus is to rebel against the author of life, the author of the story of history. So let's get down into our text. We're going to go verse by verse. We're going to move through this quickly. Might be a long sermon. I don't know. We'll see. Here we go. You guys are quiet this morning, though, so it probably won't be. Here we go. Verse 14, now after John was arrested. Okay, that's a big piece of the puzzle that we've been reading here. That's a big piece of the story. And it's actually probably up to a year after what we read last week. Okay, Jesus is baptized. He's sent out into the desert. And then there's literally a year of time that's gone, gone past up until this moment. He's attended a, a wedding feast in Cana. Mark doesn't record that. Uh, he hasn't really started his ministry. He hasn't really done too many things. He's turned water into wine, which is kind of a big deal. But Mark doesn't even record it. Mark starts right here with the ministry of Jesus. And he says this. John the Baptist gets arrested, right? Now, here, this, is, this is interesting. John's ministry is up. John's time is up. Jesus said, last week we saw that Jesus said that John was the greatest man ever born of a woman. But John's whole ministry was for one purpose, to set the stage for Jesus. John was not the main character of the story, though he was popular. Some scholars say up to 300,000 people came out to be baptized by John. John played his part, but listen, he tags Jesus in. John exits stage left. He gets taken away which you know what's about to happen, he gets taken away and eventually he's going to be beheaded, right? He gets taken away, he gets imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Now, that's a tough part to swallow. When God's handing out roles to play in his script, John, here's your part in the story. Go out to the desert, eat a crazy diet, yell at a bunch of people, tell them they are dirty and they need to be washed. Then baptize one man who's clean but needs to be made dirty. And once you baptize him, you're going to be at the prime of your life. You're going to be the middle age. You, you know, you're going to be great. But once you do that, you're going to be imprisoned and murdered. Why? Because of the drunken promise made by Herod Antipas to a teenage stripper. Herod says, this, she's dancing in front of him. Give me, ask me anything, and I'll give it to you. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. He says, okay. Think about that. That's the part John the Baptist, greatest man in the history of the world, according to Jesus up to this moment, says, this is the story, this is his part, played out in the desert, preach the gospel, go to prison, get beheaded. And John plays his part well. And he dies well. And John, if you know anything about John, John was Jesus' cousin, he, Jesus loved John. And it's here. Think about this, in the midst of this type of pain, of this type of relational pain, this type of turmoil in society that if you preach the gospel, you're under threat of death. It's here 
that Jesus launches his public ministry. Look at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus starts preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God against the bad news of sin, of of Satan, of darkness, of death. In the midst of this relational pain that he's going, this turmoil he's going through, Jesus starts preaching the gospel of God. Now, what is this? Now, listen, this is interesting because we've we've only studied so far, we've studied uh, Ephesians, we've studied Genesis, we've studied 1 Corinthians, and we've studied Jonah as a church. So the, two, the New Testament books that we've studied are both been Paul, right? They've been written by Paul. And when we say, what is the gospel? Paul tells us right away, the gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, how do you do that when you've yet to be crucified? When you've yet to condemn sin in the flesh, right? How do you do that? What is this gospel He's proclaiming. Now, John Piper has a great book called God is the Gospel. It's a crazy title. God is the Gospel. I encourage you to pick it up. And I can't answer this question for us fully today. It's going to take studying the whole book of Mark to do that. But one of the things that Jesus is saying, and actually we're going to, let's just drill down in what Jesus specifically says, and then that will help bring some clarity to us. What is the Gospel? Gospel means good news. But what is the good news of God? Like Christ, Jesus is coming preaching a message. What is that message we need to hear? And I think it's going to be important for us, especially if you've grown up in the evangelical church, and, if, and immediately if you say, somebody says, what is the gospel? You jump like Paul to say, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That answer is correct. But honestly, that's the gospel whittled down, filtered down to its bottom ingredients, to its bare bones necessity. The gospel is actually bigger than that. John Piper even says it's, it's about God, like the God is the gospel. It's about the story that he's been written. It's about the plan that he's uh, enacted in all of creation to renew all of creation for the glory of God. The gospel is so much bigger than just personal salvation, and I think we need to hear that as a body. If you struggle with what's the purpose of church, if you struggle with kind of I come to Jesus and I get my sins forgiven, now what? It's because you have this... Uh, minuscule version of the gospel, or you have this little piece of the gospel, and you you don't see it in its full expansiveness. So Jesus come to preach the gospel of God. So let's ask ourselves, what is that? What is the gospel of God that Jesus is proclaiming? Look at their text. He came proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, so there's three pieces right there that we see. What's Jesus saying? What's the good news? The gospel of God. Number one, the time is fulfilled. Number two, the kingdom is at hand. Number three, repent and believe in the gospel. Look at verse 15. The time is fulfilled. Let's drill drill down into that. What does that mean? The time is fulfilled. The word here is, it's kairos, okay? It's It's a kairos moment. It's not... Um, the clock has reached the time. When we say now is the time, today is the day, this is your moment, right? When we talk about that, or when athletes, this is my time, this is my moment, I'm going to step into that moment. We're not talking about chronological time, right? We're talking about a special moment in time, a special season, something's different about this day. Jesus, part of the message that he proclaimed is Right now, things are changing. Right now, all of history has been waiting for this moment, and I'm about to step in and change things in this moment. Mark is showing us that this is the moment in the story where the hero gets revealed. Think about reading a book, right? And you're, or watching a movie. I know some of us, we just don't read books. I get it. Let me use a movie illustration instead. You're watching a movie, and everything is progressing along this plot line, and things, you know, here's the movie, here's the movie, I'm sorry if you don't know this, here's the plot line. In the beginning, things were good. 
something happened, things go bad. And now we have this tension. What will happen? How will we resolve this problem? Who's going to fix what went bad? Who's going to be the character that takes things that have went bad and restores order and brings them back to good where we can get to the end of the story that we're all waiting for, that every children's book finally gets to? In the end, they lived happily ever after, okay? So it starts good. It's going to end good. Hopefully, if it's a good book movie, it's not just some postmodern, dark, depressing thing that just kills you at the end, right? Starts good. It's going to get good, but what happens in the middle is it gets bad, and we're waiting on this character to fix the plot. We're waiting on this character to redeem. We're waiting on this character to make things right. Now, what Jesus is saying is this is the moment the hero shows up. Okay? If you're watching a movie, this is the moment that Denzel becomes Denzel. Right? Right? Like, oh, no, he's just a clerk or whatever movie he is, right? Oh, he's just, you know, he just run, he's an engineer on a train, right? Or he's just, this is the moment where Denzel steps into Denzel, right? You know what I'm talking about. He's a normal guy. Everything's fine. He just goes to work, 9 to 5. He's a carpenter. He's this, that. But then this moment, all of a sudden, all the ex-Navy SEAL training comes out, Right? Jesus is saying, literally, this is that moment where the hero steps into his role as the redeemer, as the one who's going to make right the story that's been broken. That's what he means by this kairos moment. The opportune time is here. And if you've been reading your Bible, if you maybe started, you know, from the beginning and you read all the way through, this is the moment all the readers have been waiting for. Like every moment, we think Denzel has shown up in the story. We've King David, David is Denzel, kills the giant. Oh, and then all of a sudden, David wrecks his whole life, right? David murders a guy and has an affair. And all through the Old Testament, you're reading, waiting for the Redeemer, waiting for the one character that's going to make sense of the whole story. And every single character who you think is going to be the hero fails and falls flat on his face. So as you're reading through it, you're getting kind of tired because you've been a thousand or more pages through it, and now you get to the gospel, and Jesus steps up and says, I'm here. I'm the one. This is the moment. This, I am the character that you've been longing for. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he says the wait is over. The protagonist is here. The one who will make all things right has just stepped center stage into the limelight. The light comes down on him, and now all of creation makes sense. All of sickness and sin and destruction makes sense in him because he's the one who's going to put an end to it. He's the one who's going to make all things right. And what does Jesus say? Jesus steps into the limelight. Now is the time. I'm on stage. The world's about to change. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he says. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? Two things that we need to see in the kingdom here. One, when Jesus says the kingdom shows up, the reason he says that is because the king has arrived. Right? The only reason the kingdom shows up is because the king has arrived. So when Jesus, the invisible king of the universe... In the beginning, he was with God at the creation of all things. He was the word that birthed galaxies into existence. But now that invisible king has come to earth in flesh and blood. So the king has arrived, and with it, he's bringing his kingdom. That Jesus, in this moment, is inaugurating. Think of that. Think of a, you know, this inauguration uh, celebration. That Jesus, it's coronation day for Jesus. He's inaugurating a new kingdom. And today is going to begin the reality of, you know, Jesus' prayer that uh, things would be on earth as it is in heaven. This is the inauguration of that. Jesus is beginning a new society. He's forming a new people. Think about that. 
Jesus is coming and he's saying there's a new way to live. There's a new king in town. And anyone who lives under the authority of this king inside the kingdom will live differently. They'll be shaped by different ends, different desires, different goals. They'll live differently inside this community. There'll be a different city, a different society, a new creation. And he's saying, this day, I'm beginning this new kingdom on this earth as it is in heaven. Now, that kind of sounds cool, I hope. And if I wanted to say, what is the kingdom? And I wanted to really, this is really hard to describe. I'm just going to tell you, talking about the kingdom is really, really difficult. Um, so difficult that, you know, theologians just want to, oh, here, here's what it is. It's the eschatological future reality. That's what it is. There you go. Go ahead and just sit on that one for a while. Oh, thanks for that. What does that mean? That means, listen, and what I'm trying to get, that on earth, on earth as it is in heaven, that in the end, Jesus, the king, will come back a second time, and he's going to renew this whole earth. And guess what? The earth will not be a democracy, right? will be ruled under his kingship, under his authority, and everything will be perfect, and everything will be made right. So when Jesus sets up and he says, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is at hand, he's talking about that, that future reality, that future society, that future group of people that live a certain way, completely redeemed and completely renewed. And he's saying, it's begun now. It's happening now. It will be completed there, but it's inaugurated right now in this moment. And if you know anything about that, here, here's, herein lies our problem. When the king shows up and says the kingdom is at hand, we have a problem. And in order for us to diagnose our problem, we need to understand the earlier chapters in the story. See, in the beginning we know in Genesis when God was king, he was good, he was gracious, he was a benevolent king. He was a king who deserved to be loved believed, worshipped, followed with a full heart. But in the garden, Adam and Eve chose to be their own kings and queens. They rebelled from him and committed cosmic treason on the true king of heaven, wanting to be their own rulers, wanting to decide for themselves how to live and what to worship. So the good king cursed them like he said he would do if they rebelled. But in his curse, even in his curse, this is phenomenal because God is so not like us. Something rebels from us, we want to crush it, destroy it. He could have annihilated them right there in that moment and started over from scratch. But instead, he curses them. But in his curse, he even promises a redeemer. He says, I'm going to send a man who will crush the head of Satan under his foot, a man who would reverse the curse and make everything sad come untrue. So in reality, see, if you go back and you understand this, we were built to be ruled by a king. We were built to live under a king. We were made by this king who is the author of life, the author of all life. So when Jesus shows up as the king, he shows up with authority, with as the author made character in the story, and he comes with this message, repent and believe. Now think about that. Repent and believe. What is repent? Turn from, turn to. What's he saying? This is, he's saying, a new king is in town. Everyone in this kingdom or everyone who wants to be a part of this new kingdom must denounce all other kings in their life. They must denounce all other kings and they must believe in and trust in this one king. So you, do you see it is? Here it is right here. Do you see our problem? See, I like democracy. I don't want to be ruled by a king. I want my opinion to count. I want to say in this kingdom. And here is where we are. We sit in our culture and we sit in our society and we think things like this. Can I believe in Jesus as king and yet still be the ruler of my life? 
Can I accept Jesus as king and still be, as the great Invictus poem says, the master of my fate and the captain of my soul? Do you see the problem we're presented with here? When the king shows up, it's loyalty or not. It's you worship him or you don't, right? There is no, I'm going to accept you in this moment, but I'm going to be the king of my life, the king of my little castle. Can I accept Jesus as king and then just kind of do my own thing? Let me ask you this, and this is a popular thing, especially just, you know, on the internet, on Facebook, every other little quote that pops up is really just the ethos of this um, Invictus poem, right? I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I do what I want to do. I possess the power to shape my life and to change my life and to direct the course of my life where I want it to go. I am an American. Can I ask you if you're honest? Are you a good captain? How many times have you captained yourself into the rocks? How many times have you made bad decisions that have negatively affected you or someone you love? Right? So many of us, we want to stand up and say, I'm the captain of my soul. And if anybody knew how many ships we've wrecked over the past decade, people were like, you're a captain Get in the bathtub. Be your own captain of your own little ship in the bathtub, right? You should not be responsible for your soul or for anyone else's soul because you shipwreck folks. You make bad decisions. You're fallen. How many times over the course of your life have you went the wrong way? Can I ask you right here, with wisdom, how do you know right now you're not hell-bent for the rocks? You might be making decisions the best to your ability. Scripture says that there's a way that seems right unto man, man and that way ends in death. How do you know in five years you won't be shipwrecked? Your family won't be shipwrecked. You'll be looking back and saying, how did I get here? How did this happen? I didn't see that affair taking place. I didn't see losing my job. I didn't see that sickness. I didn't see these situations taking place. How do you know right now you're not hell-bent for the rocks? See, fools want to stand up and say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. If you're honest with yourself, there's a whole lot of evidence over the course of your life that you are not a captain to be trusted. Not only that, not only that, but you're selfish. Just think about that for a second. You know you are. What happens when someone gets in the way of you accomplishing your goals? What happens when someone blocks you from something you really desire? Now, it depends on who, what type of person you are, right? You run them over. That's one. You got, you got in my way. I'm sorry for you. Do, do, do. What was that? Another sucker. <laughs> Try to get between me and my dreams. Right? You scheme and you conquer them. You do everything in your power to outmaneuver them. You know you live with this sense of selfish desire that wants to get one up on everyone. One up on your neighbors, one up on your colleagues at work. Somebody gets a promotion, something in you gets twisted. Nobody goes, oh, so great, you got a promotion, and just walks away. You're like, hmm, wonder why he got that promotion. Wonder what he did to get that promotion, or she did to get that promotion. Hmm. What do I need to do to get that promotion? What does his promotion say about me? Really? Do you realize how small our life gets when everything becomes about us and self-focused? Self-focused people, selfish people are the most unhappy people in all the world. Their world gets shrunk down to the size of them. Everything in their life becomes about them. See? 
And what is this? What is this selfish, you know, captain? This is us, like Adam and Eve, wanting to be our own kings. We want to have, be, I'm the king of my little kingdom. And it's so funny because you might be the king of your rotary club. You might be the queen of your knitting club. You might be the king of your athletic team. You might be king of your book club. You might be king of your own personal home. Right? Just keep making babies. They're loyal followers. <laughs> this is my domain. Actually, they're not loyal followers. You should know that. <laughs> they are not. They are rebels from get-go. We don't like your rule. <laughs> Listen. This is why everyone thinks that they're kings. I can do what I want with my body. Who told you that? No, you can't. I can do what I want with my life. I'm my own king. See, this is the kingdom of self. This is the reason our society has to have contracts, right? We can't trust anyone else. No one, you don't go and buy a car and just say, all right, give me the keys and here's the cash and walk out, right? We have contract upon contract upon contract, making sure that they haven't just painted a broke down car that's going to last for 10 miles and send you out with the keys, right? Why do we have contracts? Because we can't trust anyone because everyone is out for their own good and their own gain. And we know salesmen are going to make a profit off of you, so they'll profit personally off of you buying this car. We can't trust them. Now listen, Jesus steps in to the story, this story that we all live in, and he says, I'm the king that has come to topple all the kingdoms, including the kingdom of self. I'm here to take the reins of your life because I'm the author of it. I know what will go well for you. I'm the author. I know what you were created for. Jesus isn't just taking the reins of your personal life either. He's taking the reins of all of creation because he knows where it's headed. The complete restoration and renewal of all things. Jesus is saying, I'm the king, I'm in charge, I'm ushering us towards this. But what's interesting to me is when he says, Any, who wants into this new society? Who wants into this new people group? Who wants into this redemption plan for the renewal of the whole cosmos? When he says, how do you get in? He says this, repent and believe. Oh. But what's interesting is those words are actually written in the present imperative. What does that mean? That means it's not a one-time thing. Not just a one-time thing. Obviously, there is a beginning point. There is a moment where a person turns from their kingdom of self and turns from all other kings and turns to embrace Jesus. But what this is saying in the moment is the lifestyle of a Christian is one of constant repentance and belief. It's an ongoing decision. It's an ongoing habitual practice that's meant to be lived out in community and on mission with Jesus. So many people, when I, when I grew up, in the church, all I ever heard was make a decision about Jesus today. Walk the aisle, come down here, deal with salvation, get your sins forgiven, get the salvation thing checked off, get on God's team. That's all I ever heard. It was a one-time thing. And then I heard of this a lot, but if you went out last night or if you messed around with your girlfriend too much, now it's time to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ, Right? That kind of language, rededicating. Rededic I rededicated my life a million and a half times, I think. But what we're going to see right here, following Jesus, living inside the kingdom, it begins with the decision. 
there is a moment in time where you say, okay, I, I'm not a good king, and I need to trust the king. There is a decision. But it's so much deeper than just this decision, that it's a lifetime journey. Eugene Peterson calls it this, a long obedience in the same direction. A long, I, I feel like so much of the problems in our church would be solved by understanding this concept of kingdom, king and kingdom. I meet so many people who think the church is somehow secondary, somehow it's unneeded. I'm saved. I don't need the gathering. I don't need the body. I don't need people. It's me and Jesus now. And that is a different religion. It's, not, it's unheard of in the scriptures. You never hear Jesus saying, repent and believe, go back to your life. What we're about to witness is Jesus says, repent and believe. Literally, this is what it looks like. Come follow me in community and on mission with me. Jesus is forming the church. He's beginning this new kingdom, this new society of people, and you can't have an existence outside of his kingdom, right? If you're outside of his kingdom, you're under a different king. You must be inside his kingdom, living in the community of the king. You don't learn to live this new life, to live in this new kingdom that Jesus is instituting and inaugurating, you don't learn to live in that new kingdom by making a decision. When you make a decision, right, when Jesus Christ becomes real to you, the power of the Holy Spirit has infiltrated your heart, he's regenerated you, the Spirit of God has made you brand new. But guess what? Just like my little infant baby is brand new, you don't know nothing. My baby is an expert at projectile vomiting and pooping her pants. That's what she knows. Now, I'm going to tell her, you know, I love you even when you're poopy and you smell like vomit, right? I love you, but God gave you to me to teach you how to live and to grow up into his kingdom, and she's not going to grow up on her own, isolated. The same, when we make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, Right? When we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that's not the end. We've been birthed out by the Spirit, born again. We need a community of people and inside the kingdom of God to follow the King. We need that. You don't learn to live inside this new kingdom by making a decision. You learn to live in a new kingdom by following the King living in the king's community, and being on the king's mission. Now, this is interesting because let's just think about our life. Some days are good, some days are bad. Some days are horrible. Death of a loved one. A baby gets sick, maybe dies, right? Terrorists. I mean, there's, there's just so, some days are awful. And it's in those moments you're like, why, Jesus? Why don't you just come? Why don't you just show up? Why don't you just renew everything now? Why do you wait so long? Think about this in the moment. Their life had all the same struggles our life does, and now Jesus shows up in the moment, and he says, the king is here. A new kingdom has come. And everybody's like, it's coronation day. Everything's about to change. I'm, they're probably looking to the skies, waiting for angels to come, renew all things. We're about to see galactic battle take place. The enemy's going to be cast out. This is going to be phenomenal. We're going to get front row seats to this bad boy. And then they, Jesus says in this next section of Scripture, come follow me. Come follow me. They're like, follow, follow, do your thing, renew. If I write the story, that's what happens. Sweeping battle. <laughs> Annihilates all the enemies. Things are new. But it took Jesus, it took God thousands of years before he goes, now's the opportune moment, character enter. Main character enter story. He was patient. Does it surprise us that he says the kingdom's not coming like you think it should? 
It's not going to come in a flash. It's not going to come in the speed of light and the renewal of all things. It's going to come like a seed sown in the ground. It's going to gradually grow to the greatest plant the world's seen. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, so two brothers, casting a net into the sea. They're fishermen. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So again, this is not this instantaneous thing. Follow me, you'll be fishers of men. Follow me, I will make you become fishers. Fishers of men. Process. Journey. It's going to take a long time. Peter's going to deny Jesus and move backwards and need Jesus to pursue him, need Jesus to pull him along. Not a simple process. Who does Jesus go after? He goes after uneducated fishermen. Keep going. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, two other brothers who were in their boats mending nets. Again, fishermen. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I get that dad wasn't too happy about that one. First off, I want you to see a couple things here. When Jesus says the kingdom's at hand, the king is here, he calls people to himself. Jesus doesn't put a soapbox up, up, up and just say, to whoever will come, come. He goes and he calls people by name, and he says, come follow me. This is unlike the rabbis of that day where the people, they saw a rabbi they liked, a teacher they liked, they'd go up and they'd be his little fanboy. Can I follow you? Jesus is completely different. He says, come, follow me. Like that cue ball, boom, it moves towards him. They must react. Think about this moment. You're at work. You're doing what you've done your whole life, right? Whatever that is you've been doing your whole life, Jesus walks up, this man who's been kind of shaking things up, he's, kind of, he's been teaching with some authority, he's been saying some, you know, uh, well, he, he's had all kind of stuff going on around him, there's probably this hubbub, nobody really knows who he is for sure yet, he comes up and he says, come follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. This is a moment of decision for them. This is the author coming to them and saying, nothing short of, you have been written into my story. There's a part, there's a role. It's a small role, but there's a role for you to play in my story. Come, follow me. All right? There's this missional, whole this missional bent to it. I'm going to make you become fishers of men. It's not just about you getting saved. It's not just about you going to heaven when you die. There's something going to happen. When you follow me, I'm going to make you into an evangelizer. I'm going to make you into a fisherman. I'm going to make you into a missional person that's going to bring people into the kingdom to follow the king. And then what do we see? Lastly, we see this. There's a cost. They left everything to follow Jesus. Now, what do they leave? They leave, they leave their family? Jesus is actually going to get even way more intense than this in a few chapters from now. He's going to say things like, you need to love me so much that your love for your family looks like hate. They're going to show up and they're going to be like, Jesus, he's teaching. Your mama's outside and your brothers and sisters are outside. And he says, who's my mom and my brother? You are my mother, brother, he who does the will of God. What's he doing? He's flipping the whole familial structure upside down on top of its head. He's saying the family of God is the priority over your family. Do you hear that? See, in, in our culture, this is what we think. I've heard preachers say this. We talk about it in the membership class. Here's my priorities. God, family, church, everybody else. God, family, maybe church, work, everybody else down here. That's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches, here's your priority. God's family, your family, everybody else. That's the priorities of Jesus. There, I could think, does, you're going to just leave dad with the nets and the, yep. 
follow Jesus. Right? Jesus is teaching them right here that his kingdom, his kingship outweighs every other relationship in our life, even your career. This is what it means to live life inside the kingdom of God. So there's two things that we see here in this king, to live in this kingdom. There's a calling. Jesus calls them. There's a decision to follow. And then there's a journey, a long, slow, painful process, learning to live under a new king. That this kingdom of self in us. The things that bug you about yourself, the things that bug you about your spouse, the things that make it difficult uh, to love you and to love others, those things are going to be uh, beat down. Those things are going to be toppled by living in community of the king. By this long obedience in the same direction following a new king. That if I must hear the call, I must follow I must see all the ways that my life is not in line with this kingdom. And this is what we call discipleship. Following Jesus as he teaches us how to live in his kingdom, in community, and on mission. So let me tell you, let me just say this. You will never know the real Jesus, the extent of who he is and what he came to do without living in his community on his mission. There's a, there's a piece of this that you'll never understand him without following him. You can come to church, you can read a few books, but you're never going to know Jesus intimately without being in his community on his mission. And then lastly, let's look at this as I close. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately, and there's Mark using that immediately again, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is a setup. I want to be like, Jesus, you muffed this one. Like, if, I, if I'm writing the story, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? Why, actually, I have. Right? It's exactly why I'm here, to destroy the works of the evil one. But what does Jesus do? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. In Lord of the Rings, Tolkien writes, the hands of the king are healing hands. And thus shall the rightful king be known. See, Jesus is the true king that comes to make all things right. And in this moment, when he's inaugurated his kingdom, what I want you to see, if you could pull back a little bit, he's demonstrated his power, his authority in calling his disciples. Like he calls them, he's the cue ball. Boom, he hits them, they come. There is no balking. He's demonstrated his power and his authoritative teaching, shocking, just awe. People are blown away by his teaching, and now ultimately he's shown his power even over the demonic enemy of God. That We're getting this early glimpse of Jesus doing what Jesus came to do, crushing the head of Satan. Now, if you look at this passage, there's so much going on, and Mark, it's so hard talk about even to preach because Mark just packs so much down into this little, you know, he just his economy of style, the way he writes is just so full of stuff. But I want what I want you to see as I close here is this. When Jesus comes preaching the gospel, we say it a lot around here, the gospel is good news, not good advice. 
Good advice is a message that tells us what to do in order to be saved. Follow these rules, take these steps toward God, and hopefully if you do them well enough, God will accept you. Every other religion on the planet is ultimately good advice. Listen, every other king that you could follow is going to give you good advice, even you. Do you realize this? Your kingship, your kingdom, you, you have rules of your own kingdom. Work hard, things go, will go well for you. Is that a rule? Be nice, people will be nice to you. Is that a rule? Right? We have these rules that we make for ourselves. Our kingdom itself is ruled by certain rules. If you don't believe the gospel, you will believe your own rules. They might not be written down, but here's what happens. You have these unspoken rules, and if you obey them, you feel like a good person. Today, I'm a good person. I was kind to other people. I opened the door for that person. I didn't cut that person off. I wanted to raise my finger, but I didn't. Right? You have these rules in your head. If you do well today, I feel good. If I did not do well today, I did not read my Bible today. I did not pray very long today. I cussed out my coworker today. Right? I fill in the blank. Whatever, I broke one of my own rules today, and what? You ultimately feel like a failure. You failed the king. Even when the king is you, you failed the king, and you are the most ungracious king in all the land. I don't give myself grace when I break my own rule. I crush myself. I frustrate myself. I kick myself in my own, right? My own behind. I say, you're not good enough. You're a failure. You should know better. Why did you do this? I don't even give myself grace. See, that's the religion of good advice. And you might think you believe the gospel. You might say you believe the gospel. You, and some of us do, and we struggle to believe it. But this religion of good advice presses in on us. And what Mark wants to see right away and what Jesus came to declare is the gospel isn't like that. The gospel isn't advice. It's so much better than that. It's news. Jesus is the king, but he's the king who became a character in the story, right? He's the author who became a character, and he did what we all should do. What is that? He loved God perfectly. He served the king perfectly. He played his part and our part to perfection. And Jesus didn't just obey God perf perfectly. Jesus went even farther, and he paid the punishment for our disobedience. For our cosmic treason against God the king, Jesus was willing to stand before the judgment seat of God as a traitor and be condemned as a traitor for us. Do you see the two sides of that? That he performed perfectly for us and then, and then he paid the debt that our punishment, or, or, that our sins deserve. See, Jesus is the cue ball. Jesus is the one whose action creates a reaction from us. We don't save ourselves. We don't move ourselves. We can't choose God on our own. Jesus must come and live a life that we can't live and die a death that we all should live. He comes and now when, he, when that truth, when the gospel, when the good news that the king has arrived and the king has died for you, the king loves you so much that he's died for you to bring you into this kingdom. When that news hits you, it's got to create a reaction from you. And our reaction is meant to be Faith and repentance, just like Andrew, just like Peter, just like James, just like John, they reacted rightly to the gospel. They saw it as the good news. They dropped everything else and they followed Jesus. That's the only correct response to Jesus. When they met Jesus, when they heard the calling of Jesus, their lives changed. It wasn't their efforts wasn't their ability to follow that changed them. It was the force from the cue ball. This man, there's something different about this man. 
their families took a back seat to the new family of God. Some of us in our society, we're like, that's fine. Their family, you know, church is more important than family. I get that. Their careers took a back seat to following the king. They dropped the nets. Now, it didn't mean they quit. They just quit their job. They would eventually come back to their nets. But at this, there's a priority there. They couldn't live for their self anymore. Their kingdom of self was toppled. They could never live for family or for their career. Jesus was their new king. He was what their lives would now orbit around. And if that bothers you, I don't want to be too aggressive here, arrogant. If that bothers you, you're going to hate heaven. In heaven, nothing revolves around you. Your kingdom is a sham. It's a joke. Everything you're working to possess and rule will die and will be dust. But in heaven, everything will revolve around the one king of the universe where everyone will shout, holy, holy, holy. Everyone will be caught up in the beautific vision. They get to see the face of Jesus, and that's going to satisfy every longing in our soul. Because that's the ultimate reality of heaven. That's the ultimate reality of Jesus' kingdom on this earth. In heaven, the king will be visible. His rule will know no end, and all enemies will be under his feet. Death will be no, tears will be no, no more, sickness will be no more, frustration will be no more. See, we were made to live for a king, and in that day, we'll know him perfectly and love him. And right now, we live, theologians call it, we live in between the times. Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom, but it's not been fulfilled completely yet. So we're in between the time where we, as believers, we go back and forth. Kingdom of self, kingdom of Jesus. Kingdom of self, kingdom of Jesus. And the process of discipleship, this thing that we call sanctification, basically being made more and more like Jesus, learning to be better followers of Jesus Christ in community and on mission. That's what we're doing right now, learning to live under a new king. And it's... There's this real sense, at least in my heart, that I, you want to make it more palatable. You want discipleship to be a lot easier than it is. And there's, it's a war zone. There's no way it's going to be. There's no way it's going to be. At at the bottom, we're learning to live under a new king, and we are rebels who want to be our own king. Sometimes I ask myself, why is it so hard? You know, we always say, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's so true, it is. Repent and believe. (laughs) That's, 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 That's easy. Repent and believe. But yet it's not some days. Right? Some days it's difficult. So this gospel, if you're new here, this gospel, it's not, it's not advice. It's news. Jesus Christ has defeated sin, has defeated death. He is the king. And the invitation is come live under his kingdom. And one day, and as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, one day when we get to enter that kingdom, we get to sit down at a table with Jesus Christ and, and share wine with him, share bread with him. We get to sit down and look into the face of the king and live in his kingdom. And everything we do now, every dinner we make for someone, every amount of grace we give to someone is like a window into the kingdom of God that's coming. Every 
time we confess our sins, it's a window into the kingdom. Every good thing that we do on this, as Jesus said, every cup of cold water you give to someone, it's like giving it to him. That's what we're doing in this church. That's what we're trying to do in our missional communities. We're giving a people, we're giving outsiders windows to peep in to the kingdom of God. You mean there's actually people who can confess their sin and still live in community with one another? There's people who can know how, you know, some dirty things about people and not gossip about it. There's people who actually can sin against each other and forgive one another and live in community. How, how is that possible? And we get to say, it's the king. This is what the king's done for us. This is the gospel. This is the only thing that keeps us in community and on mission. This is what's different about us. It's not us. It's him. It's his action. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be no more of those things. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you that you're the author who wrote himself into the story. Father, I pray that we would begin to see that everything, this whole creation, is a stage set to display your glory in Jesus Christ. Our lives, we're supporting actors. Our lives are not about us. They're meant to proclaim the glory and all sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would. I pray that our lives would be reoriented around Jesus and his kingdom and his community of the kingdom and his mission of the kingdom. I pray that we'd be good stewards of the gifts that you've given us. I pray that as people come in and they, they witness us and they hear the way we speak to one another, the way we love one another, the way we care for one another, our concern for our city, our concern for the mission of God, I pray that people would see a different kingdom because we serve a different king. You are a gracious and benevolent king. Father, even in this moment, people hearing the gospel for the first time, I pray that you would regenerate their heart. You would cause them to be born again and they would be pulled and drawn and into the kingdom of God. And for the believers in this room, we don't need more advice. We need to be reminded of the good news that your work is what makes our work possible. Your work is what saves us. Your work is what sanctifies us. Your work. And Father, would you help us turn from advice and turn from our own ways and embrace and believe in the one true King, Jesus Christ. Jesus, you stood up the night you were betrayed and you broke the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins and this is the blood of the new covenant. May we turn from our sins this morning, turn from the other kings and kingdoms and eat the king's bread and drink the king's blood this morning. Pray that we would do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.